And we have a wonderful opportunity this morning to commemorate and celebrate in a time where many want to cancel history and change our culture. But we're going to look at facts of our history as how our nation was founded and what our founding fathers believed. And most importantly, we're going to find out what the Bible has to say about a nation that can be blessed. So this morning, would you turn to Psalm 33? We'll look at verses 11 through 15 in a few moments. And George Washington, and by the way, before I begin, if you would like the quotes from our founding fathers uh, sent to you, you can simply email reception at cctustin.org and they will send you the quotes I'm going to share with you. And for many maybe who are younger, uh, where history has not been taught in our schools, you're going to hear things that may be a little bit shocking and they will definitely be in contrast to much of what is said in the public arena today. So let's go back to the first president of the United States who said this as to why we are now the most blessed nation ever. George Washington said, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. Our nation was founded by men we call the founding fathers, who sought to establish a nation that could experience the propitious smiles of heaven or God's blessing upon it. Our birth certificate as a nation begins with the following words. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute a new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and what? Happiness, a rule of and by and for the people is what is in view. Our nation has been blessed for nearly two and a half centuries because the founders believe that God is the creator of all life that he is the one who spoke all things into existence. And as creator, we have been endowed with rights that should not be violated by any government or form of government or fellow citizen for that matter. And those rights include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I wanna introduce our title today via something I found actually on the US Department of Treasury website. And it says this, and I quote, the motto, In God We Trust, was placed on United States coins largely because of the increased religious sentiment existing during the Civil War. Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase received many appeals from devout persons throughout the country urging that the United States recognize the deity on U.S. coins. 
It appears that the first such appeal came in a letter dated November 13, 1861, written to Secretary Chase by Reverend M.R. Watkinson, minister of the gospel from Ridleyville, Pennsylvania. In response to Minister Watkinson's request for the name of our deity, or trust in him being placed on coins, the Secretary of Treasury, Salmon uh, P. Chase, replied, Dear Sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God, or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. Could you imagine the current Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, making a statement like that? There would be yelling from all kinds of people. And what people would be yelling is the separation of church and state. Well, listen this morning. You will not find the phrase separation of church and state in our Declaration of Independence. You will not find separation of church and state in the U.S. Constitution. You will not find it in the Bill of Rights. You will not find it in any of our founding or official documents. You will, however, find those words in another national document, just not ours. And that is Article 52 of the Constitution of the former Soviet Union, which says, the school in the USSR is separated from the state and the school from the church. In other words, the communist Russian government didn't want the church having an influence over children. Is that happening today? Absolutely. Many have redefined the first amendment of our Constitution to the paraphrase of separation of church and state, where the First Amendment actually reads, and I quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. And listen, we have been endowed by our Creator with inalienable rights that the government is supposed to protect, not circumvent, not restrict, and not rewrite. And Congress is constitutionally prohibited from interfering in church business. What is the church business? Pastor Chuck put it best, to simply teach the Bible simply. All of it. Not the portions that culture would agree with, not the portions that are polit politically correct, but all of it. And in a time where our nation is divided to a degree that hasn't been seen in our country since the Civil War, we as the church today need to remember it is, and here's our title, In God We Trust. In God We Trust. Now in Psalm 910, David said, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Listen, we are seeing a lot of things change in our country. God has not forsaken us. God has not forsaken his church. His church needs to get back to the basics of the Christian faith, and we'll talk more about that in a few moments. And as Christians within the land of the free and the home of the brave who have put their trust in his name, there's three things I want to point out to you, even as we visit some quotations from those we deem to be our founding fathers this morning that remind us that there is hope for our country. Did you guys like doze off during uh, worship or what happened here? There is hope for our country. Amen. 
And the 4th of July Sunday today, I love it when the 4th falls on Sunday because we get to talk about uh, these wonderful things that our country has experienced and been blessed by. We're going to look at three things this morning that we need to remember in such a time as this. And the first comes from Psalm 33. And we'll take a brief look there and move on to two other places. So would you stand and read with me, please? Psalm 33, verses 11 through 15. And we'll make a point and then move on. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From the places of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. And Lord, we do thank you for our country. We thank you, Lord, even in the midst of all of its errors and problems that have been a part of any nation, Lord, including ours, since its inception, that you have been faithful to us. We pray you would remind us of these things and the importance of our role in the country in which we now live and enjoy. Speak to our hearts, we pray, as we celebrate uh, the birthday of our nation and its founders and that which they said that all pointed to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now the psalmist begins with one of the most significant truths recorded in God's word about God's word, and that is that the counsel and plans of the Lord are eternal. And what that means is they remain the same from generation to generation and from culture to culture within all nations of people who proclaim the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as their Lord are going to be nations that are blessed. Are we living in a blessed land? Yes. Has America been a great blessing to other countries? Yes. yes, indeed. And we know in Psalm 21, verse 7, King David said, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. And I want to point out to you this morning that those in places of leadership in our country, when it was, was born, were people who trust in the Lord. And in Psalm 34, 7 to 10, we're told the angel of the Lord encamps, around, encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. That is a fitting description of our nation. Of course, we have had our ups and downs, our depressions and recessions and all those things, but God has been faithful through them all. Amen? Amen. And what David is saying is that when kings and commoners trust in the Lord, they are going to experience the mercy and grace of God. And yes, the Bible teaches that the sun rises on the evil and the good. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And this is the common grace of God. But beyond the common grace of God, for those who are for him and those who are against him, lie the abundant blessings he pours out on those who trust in his name, whom he will never leave nor forsake. And Benjamin Franklin, one of our founders, said this, Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs the world by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we can render him is doing good to his other children. That the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this, this life he means. Now, 
Franklin and Jefferson are often thrown under the bus, so to speak, as being the least religious of all of our founders. And Franklin very openly admitted that he had reservations about the deity of Christ, and yet he said in his own words, he's not dogmatic about his position. And yet he saw the most significant contribution a citizen could make to their country was twofold. To worship God and to do good to others. That sounds kind of biblical, doesn't it? <laughs> to worship God in spirit and in truth and to do unto others as we would have them do unto you. That rule sounds golden, doesn't it? <laughs> now, why would he say such a thing? Because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Now, at first reading, I'm sure because of its placement in the Old Testament, some would say, well, yeah, this is a promise to Israel. This is a promise exclusive to the Jews. No, it isn't because the word nation here is actually the Hebrew word for Gentile. It's the word goy. So blessed is the Gentile nation who trusts in the Lord. And that brings us to our first 4th of July reminder on this wonderful Sunday as those who trust in God. We need to remember this this morning. The true church is any country's greatest asset. The true church is any country's greatest asset. Now initially I wrote the church is any country's greatest asset, but I realized not all that is called the church is actually the church. The true church is that which continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread and prayers, because the counsel of the Lord stands for how long? Forever. Forever. And the plans of his heart are the same throughout all generations. And this has always been true, even back in the record of the law, the second law is what Deuteronomy means. In 7.9, Moses wrote this, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations, that's a Hebraism for forever, with those who love him and do what? Keep his commandments. This has always been God's plan. And we need to recognize in these United States of America that while we all note that there are blessings associated with personal obedience to God's plan and word, Deuteronomy and the Psalms implies and reminds us that there's national application as well. Blessed is the nation, the Gentile peoples, whose God is the Lord. And looking back over history, you can see everywhere that Christianity flourished, that nation was blessed. Everywhere it was oppressed, the government was oppressing the people as well. And this underscores the importance of the church maintaining its consistency with its beginnings. We teach the Bible. We believe the Bible. We live according to the Bible. No matter what may be trending culturally, no matter what society may be pressuring us, pressuring us into believing and doing. And in Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for what? Nothing, Nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, in a lot of ways, our country has lost its way. Right? We're off course. There's no question about that. And much of it is because the church has forsaken its call to be a nation's preserving and purifying influence. And it's only when the church is healthy and grows in any nation that those blessings beyond the common grace of God can be expected. And listen, on July 4, 1776, what is known as a great experiment began. A new model for building a nation was tested. And the results are exactly what was written in the Psalms. Because our founder says, God is the Lord. Our nation has been blessed. We need to continue in that blessing. Amen? Yeah. 
And it is the true church that is a cause for God's abundant blessing on any land, and that is why Bible-believing Christianity is always under attack. Satan only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does not want anyone pursuing life, liberty, and happiness, only death, bondage, and discouragement. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Now, our second reminder is those who trust in God comes from the Proverbs. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts what? A nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Now, one thing you need to pay attention to is that any time the founders use the word religion, they're talking exclusively about Christianity. They're not talking about religion as an ideology that can have uh, many different manifestations. They're talking only about the Christian faith and the, the denominations or sects within it. Now, the Continental Congress repeatedly referred to Christianity as true religion in their publication called Proclamations to the American Public. And you can find this in editions written in June of 1775, March of 1779, and October of 1782. Now also, back to Benjamin Franklin, he stated this, history will also afford frequent opportunities of showing the necessity of a public religion or Christianity declared publicly from its usefulness to the public, the advantage of a religious character among private persons, the mischiefs of superstition, and the excellency of the Christian religion above all others ancient or modern. And basically what Franklin was saying is exactly what our point is. The greatest asset to any country is Christianity. And the church is to practice biblical Christianity. Amen? Amen? After all, George Washington wrote, it is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. Amen. If there's anything that's worth an amen, that's it. It is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. Of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, our religion and morality are indispensable supporters. Let us with caution indulge this uh, supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that our national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. When a founder writes the word, word religion, what's he speaking of? Christianity. So Washington said, our national morality can't prevail. Uh, let no one expect that our national morality can't prevail in exclusion of Christian principles. In a letter to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams wrote in 1813, the general principles upon which the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young gentlemen could unite. And these principles could only be intended by them in their address or by me in my answer. What were these general principles? I answer, the general principles of Christianity, in which all these sects were united and the general principles of English and American liberty. He went on to say, now I will avow and that I then believe and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, and that those principles of liberty are as unalterable as human nature and our terrestrial mundane system. And just as heaven and earth won't pass away, Adams is saying to Jefferson, neither will the word of God and its principles. In 1781, on his notes, uh, in his notes on Virginia, Thomas Jefferson wrote, again, one of the two least religious uh, among the founders, according to some, said this, 
God who gave life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are a gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. We are seeing the consequences in our country of moving away from the principles that brought such great blessings from the Lord upon us. We become a country of tolerance. We become a country of acceptance of immorality under the pretense of love and grace. Now listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah had some things to say that were pretty interesting about national leadership. As a matter of fact, in chapter 5, he said, when a nation turns their back on the Lord, part of the punishment will be incapable leadership. I'll just leave that right there. He said, the Lord said, I will give them children as princes. In other words, he would give them unqualified leaders. Listen to what Isaiah then says in 26.10. Let, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Now, we live in an age where many churches have adopted the mindset and the associated practices with the belief that we need to make church more appealing. We need to not say things that turn people off. We need to not be so dogmatic about sin. And this is happening all around us. It's consistent with 2 Timothy 4, where there'll be a preference over ear-tickling sermons to the rightful dividing of the word of truth at some point in time. We're there, amen? amen? Yet, our country's only source of salt and light is being trampled underfoot by men because we have abandoned the very principles that were established upon the scripture that made our nation great. And with this tolerant attitude that's being forced upon us and shoved down our throat today, is our nation becoming more righteous? No, it's becoming more antichrist. I've heard countless times people say, you can't legislate morality. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, what are the Ten Commandments? Isn't that legislative morality? Isn't that thou shalt not or you shall do this? And listen, I get their point. Writing laws that make for a better society isn't going to make everybody act better. But it is going to set a standard by which good and bad behavior can be measured. And there is no governmental system, there is no human being that is able to write a universal standard by which righteousness is defined in every age of history and in every society and culture around the world. That takes somebody smarter than we am. <laughs> None of us have that capacity, right? So where are we going to find such a standard that is applicable in every age and never changes even when cultures and technology and all the other things we see around us are changing? Well, that standard setter is God himself. Amen? Amen? And for something to be a violation of God's moral law in one century has to be the same in every other century. Otherwise, God would be unfair, and he is not. Now, let me put it like this, just as a, a packaged point. In God we trust is not just a motto, it's a way of life. In God we trust is not just a motto, it's not just our national motto, it's a way of life. And again, since God doesn't change and is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then his word doesn't change, nor does the definition of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian today is the same thing as a Christian in the book of Acts. Hello? Yeah. So let me make our point through the hot-button topic of 
Christian homosexuality. That's an actual phrase that's used today, and we'll talk about some of these things. And because this is a hot-button topic, uh, we're going to punch on it a little bit. Listen, does the Bible define acceptable sexual activity? Yes. Yes, very clearly. Between one man and one who are married. So, does the Bible define sexual or homosexual activities as sinful? Yes. yes, it calls it unnatural in Romans 1. It says it's against God's original design. And like it or not, this is true. And may I remind you that God does not have a moral suggestion box. <laughs> well, you know, we really like this, so can we do it? You know, I, I heard a pastor, I was watching this thing on... Uh, I forget what the subject actually was, but it was Vody Bauckham and some others who were talking about, uh, oh, hearing from God and people saying, thus says the Lord. I, I watched the pastor. They actually paid, played a clip where he said, you know, it was kind of funny because one day I was in my prayer time and I was walking around my office and God said to me, and the pastor's name is Jesse, Jesse, I need your opinion on something. I was thinking about doing this. What do you think about that? And his pastor said, well, I told the Lord what I thought. And the Lord said, you know what? You're right. Let's do that. Uh, that conversation never took place, except maybe in the noggin, you ought to take a pill for that, because that, that just doesn't happen, amen? And listen, if God said it, that settles it. And whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. If God said it, it's fact. It's true, and it doesn't change. Now, J. Vernon McGee said this, this is God's universe, and he does what he pleases. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Right? God said it, that's the end of the argument. That's the way it is. Now, people make the argument that any loving, and so-called Christians do this, any loving relationship should be validated because God is love. And then they usually add this, well, that's how they were born. So we should accept them. It's not within their control. It's just the way they were born. And we're all made in God's image. We're all God's children. It's that nature versus nurture argument. Well, let's clear that up. Let's clean that up, as a matter of fact. You ready? Yes. Genesis 5.3, in the genealogy of Adam, we're told Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in what? His own likeness and after his image and named him Seth or appointed. In his own, li in his own likeness means to bear a physical resemblance and after his image means in his fallen moral state. In other words, Seth was just like Adam and Eve. Because in the garden, the likeness and similitude to God was sacrificed when man became spiritually dead. That's why you must be born again. And actually, the word image is the same Hebrew word used for an idol. And we are not to worship idols. Amen? Every person ever born shares a physical and spiritual resemblance to Adam. We're humans. Some present more evidence than others, but we're all humans, right? And at birth, we are spiritually dead, separated from God by our nature, by being born like Adam. And we need to be born again, meaning to be born spiritually. Now listen, Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, 24 to 27, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his what? 
his works. Okay, so for the sake of argument that some Christians even make today, and I would say I'd phrase that as supposed Christians, because you can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't agree with the Bible. Right? Just for the sake of argument, let's say that someone is born as a homosexual. Do they get a free pass that is not available to the liar, the thief, the adulterer, the coveter, and those who are break the Ten Commandments in other ways? No. no. Now, the argument that people often make is, you know, they were born a homosexual. What are they supposed to do? Deny that their whole life? Yep. <laughs> you have to. I have to, whatever the manifest manifestation of sin in your life may be, you have to deny yourself. So, so should they. Now, the point is this. You can't say in God we trust and, live, and then live contradictory to God's word. Even if you don't like what God's word says. Even if you don't agree with what God's word said. In God we trust is not just a motto. It's a way of life. Now, our last truth also comes from the Proverbs, and it'll give us another hot-button topic to discuss. It's been said that there are two subjects that are off-limits for decent conversation in their religion and politics. So to make sure we offend everybody today, we're gonna to talk about both. <laughs> now, Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people what? Rejoice. Rejoice, but when the wicked man rules, the people grown. Now, I find it beyond bizarre that so many pastors today say the church should not be involved in politics. And you know, I'm thankful for my brother and friend, Pastor Jack Hibbs, and that guy, you need to be praying for him because he gets more garbage thrown at him than anybody I think I've ever known. He is constantly under attack for his involvement in politics and in Washington and the wonderful doors that God has opened for him to be a voice in a place that desperately needs to hear from the Lord. Amen. But listen, to say we shouldn't be involved in politics is ridiculous. And I would agree with the full support of the First Amendment behind me that uh, government should stay out of the church's business because they don't know what they're doing. Because the natural man cannot discern the things of God because they're spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. But the attitude of so many who claim to be woke today actually proves they're more asleep than everybody else. <laughs> and in Romans 13.1-5, we're told this. Now pay close attention. Let every soul, say every soul. Every soul. Every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices what? Evil. evil. Now again, if these are to avenge and execute wrath on those who practice evil, evil has to have a definer outside of humanity. And it has to have one that is standard amongst all people and in all generations. Now, let's pause and clear something up. There is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God does not mean that every person in every office is somebody God put there. Yeah. 
it means that the office that they hold is authorized by God. Human government is authorized by God. Now, let me also recognize something that I think needs to be said as well today. Recognizing the ordinance of human government is from God, though not every person in government is godly. Because if that were so, that would mean God puts people in office to make us groan. Which would be contradictory to 1 Thessalonians 5.16, that we are to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. rejoice. Now, Paul goes as far as calling those in authority God's minister. Now, the word minister here is diakonos, and that means one who carries out the plans of another. What plans are they to carry out? God's plans. They're his ministers. Now, in verse 6 of this same chapter, Paul uses another word in the plural form for ministers, and it means public servants, and that's what our government officials are supposed to be, and that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be serving us, right? So... Let me ask this of those who say church should not be involved in politics. Why would God institute a model for human governments to carry out his plans for righteousness and justice and then want the unrighteous and the unjust to run it? Does that make any sense? Why would God say that we need this order within humanity and I'm going to institute an ordinance and I want those who are opposing me to run it? It just doesn't make any sense. And the founders didn't see it that way either. How do we know? John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the first Supreme Court appointed by the first President of the United States said this, nothing is more certain than the indispensable necessity of government. And it is equally undeniable that whenever and however it is instituted, the people must see to it some of their natural rights in order to vest it with requisite powers. In other words, there is a necessity of people in authority and government positions in order to monitor society. Now, he's acknowledging also the relationship between citizens and those in power and the need for such a system to be equal for all as the Declaration of Independence says. All men are created equal are in, and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, because of this relationship between citizen and leadership, he also said this. Listen to this. This is the first Chief Justice of the first Supreme Court appointed by George Washington himself, and he said, John Jay, that is, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty, as well as the privilege and interest of our, what kind of nation? Christian nation, to select and prefer Christians for their what? For their rulers. So the first just, chief justice of the first Supreme Court appointed by the first president of the United States, thought that Christians should be involved in politics. So where did we get where we are today? Well, John Jay also said this in 1784. The Bible is the best of all books. I'm sorry, did you not hear that? The Bible is the best of all books. Listen to Jay, what he says. For it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts. Now, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. I want to be a rejoicing person, don't you? I don't want to be a groaner. And we've had a lot of things to groan about uh, recently. And in Proverbs 15, 6, listen to this. This is important. In the house of the righteous, there is much what? treasure. 
but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. This is why the people groan when the wicked rule. The word revenue means obviously income, but it also means fruit. Within the fruit of the wicked is trouble. Now here's our last truth on the 245th birthday of the greatest nation in the history of the world. And it's simplistic as are others. And it's just this. Listen this morning. It is always right and best to believe and obey the word of God. It is always right and best to believe and obey the word of God. Now, some of you, I'm, I'm sure some of you younger people have probably not heard this, but I think most of us, when signing a document or a receipt, have had somebody say to us, put your John Hancock right here. Anybody hear, hear that saying? Well, that's because John Hancock was the first to sign the Declaration of Independence. And apparently, he didn't realize how many other people were gonna put their name on it because he wrote his name huge. <laughs> but listen to what John Hancock and the one who now has that famous signature said. He said, resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. Continue steadfast and with a proper sense of your dependence on God. Nobly defend those rights which heaven gave, listen to this, and no man ought to take from us. Now, human government is unquestionably an institute ordained by God. Yet positions in government are often occupied by questionable humans. And there are times, as Peter said in Acts, where disobedience to authority is in order. And in Acts 4, 19 through 20, Peter and John <clears throat> answered and said to them the council, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Listen, here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, you know, after we, all we heard Jesus teach, after all he's done for us and in front of us for others, how are we going to be silent about that? That needs to be our attitude as well. After he saved my wretched soul that was hell bound and covered my sin in his own blood, how can I be quiet about him because the government tells me to be? How can I not speak and see the things that he has done for me? And then in Acts 5, 27 to 29, we're told when they had brought them, the apostles again, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this, in this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine or teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, read it with me please out loud. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now listen, believing the Bible to be the absolute and final authority on all things moral and spiritual is deemed by many today as hateful and some even label it as an act of violence. Now we saw this manifested over the weekend where this past Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States refused to hear a case and therefore became complicit in the violation of the First Amendment rights of a florist up in Washington State when they rejected hearing the case between Arlene Flowers Incorporated and Arlene's Flowers Incorporated versus the state of Washington. This was filed by Baronel Stutzman, whose complaint to the court explained that while she serves everyone, including same-sex couples who need flowers for other events, her religious beliefs prevent her from creating custom floral arrangements that celebrate same-sex weddings. The state of Washington sued Stutzman, alleging her refusal to provide the flowers violated the state's anti-discrimination law. Now the state legislator 
or legislation passed this law in violation of the First Amendment. Congress shall pass no law. Listen, the Supreme Court doesn't make law, right? It is only the Congress that can make law and state legislation. So they would fall under that banner of uh, the First Amendment. Now, refusing to hear this case is in essence just saying, you know what, they're, they're right, we're not gonna argue uh, with their decisions. They can tell a Christian that they have to do things that violate their conscience and contradict their religious beliefs. Now, when I grew up, there were signs in many stores and restaurants, some of you, most of you maybe have, have seen them, that said, no shoes, no shirt, no service. In other words, it used to be that it was okay to set and maintain a decorum that was deemed suitable to conducting business in your own cell-phoned establishment. But today, your belief in the Bible as the moral code for all humanity is not welcome and it's viewed as discriminatory. In other words, our great nation is moving away from the things that made us great and brought us so many blessings. Now listen, believing, you guys still here? Yeah. Believing lying, stealing, adultery, coveting, having other gods than the true and living God, and yes, homosexuality, are sins, isn't hate. It's just believing the Bible. Because that's what God has stated in his inspired and infallible word. And it's always right and best to believe and obey the word of God. Listen, whether it's popular or not, you still listening? Yes. Whether it's legal or not. Did you hear the last part? Yes. Whether it's legal or not. Whenever those in places of authority tell us we have to disobey the word of God, that is when we stand up and say, no way. We ought to obey God rather than men. We are in a season of our nation's history that I believe is the answer to the question, why is America not found in Bible prophecy? I believe we're following the path of the ancient Roman Empire and we are imploding from within. So we should just throw in the towel, be silent, go sit in the corner, wait for the rapture. Right? No, not at all. Is there hope for America? Absolutely. You know how I know? Do you want to know? Yes. Jonah. Nineveh. An exceedingly wicked city. People that tortured, skinned others alive, put rings in the noses and led like livestock their captives after they decimated their cities. The Assyrians were an exceedingly violent people and Jonah hated them and God sent him to them. Jonah said, no, I'm going as far away from Nineveh as I can. God said, I've got an unusual means of transportation to get you to your destination. <laughs> and Jonah wound up there, and in three, four, and five, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. It was a city that was 70 to 80 miles wide, three days of foot journey in length. Then he cried out, listen to Jonah's whole sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Did he say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and will accept you just as you are and doesn't expect you to change? No, he didn't say that. He said, judgment is coming. Get right. Amen. 
Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh did what? They believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on the apparel of mourning or sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then in 3.10 we're told, then God saw their works, that they turned from their what? Evil. Evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What does 2 Chronicles 17 say? Uh, 7.14, rather. If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves. Are we God's people? Yes. Are we called by his name? Yes. Absolutely. Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Can I leave anything out? And turn from their... What did Nineveh do? They turned from their... What did God do? He relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. Listen, my hope for us is that a God we trust continues to be a factual declaration in our homes, not just some kind of motto we throw around or stamp on our coins. And I pray that we be as Joshua when he addressed the nation right before his death, where he said to them in 24:15, and containing the famed statement as he cl uh, closed, he said, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve, serve the Lord. Listen, I love our country. I don't agree with everything that happens or has happened, but I love our country. I'm glad to be born here, aren't you? I've been... And most, I think there's only one continent I've never been on. I love it here. We are a blessed and fortunate people. And I don't, this isn't just hyperbole where I'm saying we are the greatest and most blessed nation in the history of the world. I've been to other nations. We're blessed. Amen. And we ought to see ourselves as such. But I pray, I pray, and I hope you do too, that our leaders return to believing and obeying God. And listen, if they don't, does the Bible say things are going to get better and better or worse and worse? worse and worse and they're headed in that direction that doesn't mean we don't ask for the turning of our land you know um, some people say why are you praying for revival it's only temporary somebody said that to Billy Sunday and he said well so's the bath but it still does you good <laughs> now listen if things continue in the direction that they are going if our leaders do not return to believing and obeying God let your house even if it's the only house on your street be one that serves the Lord. Amen. Regardless of what's happening, we are a blessed people and fortunate in that we can still stand up here and preach a sermon out of the Bible and talk about history and the founding of our nation and all the things that made it great and all the ways that God has blessed us. But things are changing. There's no doubt about us. So listen, let's not just contemplate our navels and go sit on a hill or run to Montana and buy water and bullets. <laughs> let's tell people about Jesus amen because that's what we're here for that's part of why God blessed our nation because we sent missionaries out all over the world to preach Christ and him crucified and when you do the things that God has ordained you to do you're going to experience God's blessing and there's no way that that can't be true somebody say amen. and Father we do declare our trust in you today 
We thank you for this great land in which we now live. God, we recognize the errors, mistakes, and, and all the uh, things that have happened in our past as wrong. And Lord, even many of the things being manifested today, we see clearly are outside of your word. But our hope is in you. You promise blessings to nations whose God is the Lord. And Lord, we pray that those blessings uh, return and continue that have been experienced in this great land. We thank you for our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for their salvation. We pray, Lord, that they, by their salvation, would have the ability to tap into a supernatural resource that would tell them what it is they need to do regarding certain situations and also have an awareness of Bible prophecy so they know who is going to move against who in the days that come. So, Father, we just pray for our country. We thank you for our country. We celebrate our country as well. And we're thankful that we live here and we are blessed to do so. So, Lord, we pray that today our conversations would be about not just the great country of America, but the great God who has blessed America greatly. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity today to review the facts of history and what our founders believed that made our country great and allowed it to be blessed. We give you honor and high praise. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.